Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. This is Joe Cotter. We talk about all kinds of cancer research on this podcast, everything from breast cancer to colorectal cancer, the molecular mechanisms and DNA repair, all the way to you know survivorship issues and financial toxicity. Today, we're going to be talking about metastasis. 90% of cancer deaths are caused by metastasis. So for this conversation, we wanted to talk with somebody who's an expert, somebody who treats patients and somebody who does research herself. So we spoke with Dr. Karuna Ganesh. She's a physician scientist and assistant member at Memorial Sloan Kettering. As a clinician, she's a GI medical oncologist. As a researcher, she runs a lab that's trying to understand what it is about metastatic cancer cells that make them so deadly and, and how can we target them. So my colleague, Dr. Susanna Greer, talked with her. And let's just get right into the conversation. Good morning, Karuna. How are you? Good morning, Suzanne. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. We're excited to talk to you today. So we are going to focus on cancer metastasis. So before we jump in, because we're not all 100% on board, how do you define metastasis? So metastasis is when cancer cells learn how to leave the organ or the tissue where they first started growing and learn to spread to different parts of the body. And this is really important because ultimately uh, when we're dealing with cancer, it's usually not the primary tumor that started off in the breast or the colon or the lung um, that causes major long-term problems, but it's when these cancer cells learn how to spread and live in different parts of the body, that's what's really the killer here. And in fact, more than 90% of cancer deaths are caused by metastasis. And that's why it's so important that we try and figure out what's making metastasis sick and figure out ways to, treating, uh, to treat metastasis. Wow, those are startling statistics. 90% of cancer deaths caused by metastasis. So yeah, these cells on the move really are a problem. Um, I guess... I'm having a hard time kind of understanding though, right? So moving for humans is stressful, right? Yeah. It's a pain <laughs> to pick up and move from your apartment to a condo or to another house. So why would you do that? Why would cancer cells then uh, seek alternative uh, locations? What What's in it for the cancer cell? That's a really great question. So cancer is ultimately a disease of growth. It's uncontrolled, abnormal growth. And of course, most of our cells in our body uh, live in areas where there's not that much space, honestly. And so it's just like, you know, if you started off in a studio apartment and then you had a family uh, and you start to grow your family and now you have two dogs and three kids and a husband or a wife, um, and then now you don't have any room anymore. And that's the same thing that's happening to cancer cells. As they start to grow, they run out of nutrients, they run out of oxygen, they run out of uh, sugar to help themselves grow. And so they really need to, in order to survive, they need to spread out. And that's exactly what's driving metastasis. That's the evolutionary selective pressure that's forcing these cancer cells to do whatever they can to find a space in which to grow and expand. And as part of that process, sometimes they stumble into the circulation and they find that some of these cells are able to grow in different parts of the body. And as you pointed out, metastasis in, is indeed very stressful and difficult. And in fact, the vast majority of cancer cells that somehow end up leaving their home, if you like, leaving the primary tumor, die. But it's those rare, uh, aggressive cancer cells that are able to successfully survive in different organs that are able to take off and grow. And it's exactly because they are aggressive that they are so problematic. Oh, wow. I love those analogies. So 
I guess let's start with where you left off, that it is the, the rare cell, the rare cancer cell that survives this journey. So not everybody who leaves the first place that cancer cells are hanging out is going to make it. And I love that you shared that it's really a space issue, which is really interesting. So it's a space issue and a supply issue that these cells are running out of room they're running out of supplies, and you mentioned oxygen and nutrients, and so off they go, and the most aggressive are going to survive this journey where they've kind of, as you said, stumbled into the circulation and are looking for other uh, greener pastures, shall we say. So that's right. one of the really interesting parts of your research is that um, you think about the relationship between wound healing and cancer. And I think it's fascinating all the different areas that wound healing and cancer have in common, but help us level set. So what are the basics, I guess, of wound healing? So what is required? So just as cancer cells need more space and nutrients to move, uh, what's mm -hmm. required for wound healing and what are the major players in this space? Yeah. So the, the, I think the fundamental thing with wound healing is that you know, most wounds happen in what we call epithelial tissues, meaning things that line our organs. Um, things like the skin is an epithelium tissue, or in the organ that I study in the gut, the lining of our intestines, those are all epithelial cells. And the main evolutionary purpose of e epithelial cells is to form a barrier. Right? So if the skin cells are not forming a tight barrier, then we're going to get all kinds of bugs and nasty things getting into our bodies. And the same is true for our gut. If that barrier is not maintained, um, we're immediately going to have very significant problems. And so when we have a wound, what that is fundamentally doing uh, is, you know, if you cut yourself, that's damaging this epithelial barrier. And this is a major stress to our bodies and to our survival attack. And so there is a massive stress response that's activated. And the first thing that is done is to shut down that wound. It doesn't necessarily have to be perfect. And we know that from scarring, right? So when we first have a wound, the first thing that happens is that we have a scar that's set, set down. And eventually that scar will heal and turn into what looks more like normal skin. But the initial response is to form a scar. And the point of the scar is to, is to cover up that barrier. And that's exactly what we found happens in metastasis as well. Um, that during metastasis, effectively what you have is a breach in the epithelial barrier because these cancer cells, they start off just like normal tissue cells, um, forming sheets of cells uh, that are growing in an uncontrolled way. But in order to metastasize, in order to get to a distant organ, these sheets of cells have to break up, either as single cells or small clusters of cells that by definition have to form a wound. They have to let go of their neighbors. And when they let go of their neighbors, this process of metastasis again evokes this wound response where these cells uh, are trying to form a barrier and they're trying to regenerate and repair themselves. And it's that exactly that... Um, uh, that causes this analogy with wound healing. So the same processes that our body uses normally to repair ourselves and to regenerate tissue after injury are used um, in a bad way by metastasis because they have this memory of how to repair wounds, which is very deeply ingrained within these cells, which they then use to be able to survive in the circulation and then to form big tumors in organs where they're not supposed to live. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I, I've never thought about all of the, the challenges that 
the epithelial layer. So you mentioned the skin and you also mentioned the lining of the gut that the challenges that are faced in kind of this immediate sense when there's a wound. So some laceration or tear or, or that the, the number one goal has to be immediate repair to, to keep out all the bad, all the bacteria and all the viruses. And so I, I loved what you said that the repair doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to happen and it needs to happen quickly. And so we have this stress response where uh, there's this huge concerted effort to repair this damage. And it was so interesting, the comparison that you made to a metastatic cancer where the cancer cells or cell that has to move has to go through a very similar process of kind of this breakup um, or this uh, similar to this damage response and then forming this wound. So where the processes that occur in wound healing can be quite similar. So but used in a bad way, like you said. So I'd love for you to, can you take us one level deeper? Maybe help us under, understand what processes could be used in a, a bad way, so to speak, in cancer metastasis that are used in a very good way in wound healing. And so I think it's so interesting what you said, that cells have this memory. They know what to do to accomplish wound healing and then can permutate that or, or do it in a bad or uh, different way when the cancer cells yeah. are on the move. Absolutely. And and uh, so we did a series of experiments that we published earlier this year where we find that um, normal intestinal cells that form the lining of the gut, um, when they, uh, they don't normally activate this wound response, uh, but if you then induce a colitis, so you have an inflammation in the gut that causes the destruction of the cancer cells, um, what happens is that the cancer, uh, sorry, the normal cells, the normal cells of the intestinal epithelium will detect that they've lost their neighbors. So they detect the loss of the intact epithelial barrier. And by doing so, um, they then immediately activate this regenerative wound healing response. And as part of that process, they make a molecule called L1-CAM, which is an adhesion molecule. So it's effectively like Velcro. And that Velcro allows these cancer cells to bind to whatever they can find in their neighboring environment. They bind to what's called the basement membrane, um, which is uh, a layer uh, effectively of connective tissue that's present in any organ. And by binding to this basement membrane, L1CAM allows these cells to feel safe. They know that something is going on. They're doing all right. The barrier is being controlled. And that then allows these cells to survive and eventually to regenerate a new epithelial layer that repairs the gut in a proper way. And we found that actually when you form a primary tumor, so when the colon starts to grow into a polyp, uh, which is something that we detect by colonoscopies and remove before they form cancers or precancerous tumors, these tumors actually don't need L1CAM because they're just growing and growing, but the epithelial barrier is completely intact. But again, the moment these cells start to invade and start to spread out as metastasis seeds into distant organs, they've lost contact with their friends. And again, they evoke this wound healing response. So again, these cells that are in the circulation that are trying to form metastases, the ones that are successful will make L1-CAM. And this L1-CAM will again allow these cells to stick to basin membranes. And these basin membranes can be found uh, in blood vessels or surrounding blood vessels uh, or in other organs. And wherever they can find basin membrane, they'll stick to that. 
And that is, in fact, what allows these cancer cells to survive the stress of being in the circulation and being in foreign tissues because these cells then feel safe. And then the safety allows them to uh, activate this regenerative program that allows them to form new metastases in distant organs. This is just crazy. So just like human beings, we seek shelter and we seek our friends and we seek safety. I mean, you've drawn some really brilliant analogies that cancer cells are doing the same thing. So if I understood correctly, uh, we can really think about the difference in, and the example you gave was in a polyp in the colon where you would think about a primary tumor, a tumor that's not spreading, doesn't have much need for this safety. And you gave us the name for kind of the safety and we were can think about it like a piece of Velcro as being a protein called L1-CAM. But maybe just for this podcast, we'll call it the Velcro. So the polyp doesn't need the Velcro, but then as cancer cells from that polyp become invasive, all of a sudden they need it. They need L1-CAM, they need the Velcro, and they are in this way, I, I think, doing what you've been quoted as saying is uh, wound healing go- gone wrong, that metastasis is a form of wound healing gone wrong. So, and that they're looking for safety, they're looking for a new place to stick, a new place to hang out. So is, is that reasonable? Is that why metastasis is wound healing gone wrong in a way? And that's exactly right, because metastasis is really borrowing the same processes that we have developed for wound healing in a good way. We need these processes so that we can protect ourselves when we get hurt. But the metastasis cells are really lethally co-opting these processes for their own nefarious purposes. And that's why we think metastasis is wound healing gone wrong. All right. Let's say that all of this happens. It works out just fine. The cancer cell that has grown unsatisfied because there's crowding and not enough oxygen and not enough nutrients at the primary tumor site, this cancer cell and some of its buddies are on the move. And those cells now need this Velcro, and they're going to use that Velcro, this molecule LCAM1, to find another place to stick. And let's say that they are successful in doing that. Okay. So one thing I'd like for you to help us to understand is once that cancer cell moves to a different site and has been successful in undergoing this process called metastasis, are they the same cell or are they different in some way than the cells that were back in the first site, the first house that they were hanging out in? Yeah, that's a really great question. So as you can imagine, the whole stressful process of leaving one's home and going through the circulation and surviving all the stresses that are uh, around there, including fighting off the immune system in order to eventually be able to successfully grow in a different place, these have really changed the cancer cell, right? So the cancer cell, as I said at the beginning, has turned into a really much more aggressive version of what it used to be in the primary tumor. And um, this is really similar to you know, some of the changes that we see in ourselves as individuals. You know, when you're growing up at home uh, as a kid, you're in a comfortable, safe environment. But as you leave home, as you go to college and you do things in your careers, 
you have to evolve different traits in order to be able to succeed and survive in a different environment from the environment in which you grew up. And that's exactly what's happening to metastasis cells. And something that we've learned through our work is that metastasis cells actually are in a different state. They behave differently. They have different properties. They have more abilities to survive different types of stress than the cells in the primary tumor. And this is exactly what's making metastasis so difficult to treat. And in fact, we know from our clinical practice that when patients have primary tumors, that's early stage cancers, we're often able to cure people completely by cutting out their tumors and uh, by giving them some chemotherapy or radiation. In contrast, when patients have metastatic or stage four cancers that have spread to different parts of the body, these cells are totally different and they're super aggressive. And this is why metastatic cancer is really, really hard to treat. And in many cases, uh, we are only able to control these tumors for a period of time but we do not in 2020 have the ability to completely eliminate these tumors. And this is exactly what I am so passionate about uh, for the sake of my patients and also in terms of the science that we do is we are so motivated to try and figure out what makes these metastatic cancer cells so aggressive so that we can find ways to attack them and destroy them. All right, so we wanna move to thinking about where your area of expertise is and and where you are so excited and motivated, and that is dealing with these cells that are hugely problematic. So they've undergone this process of moving from the initial tumor site, taking advantage of kind of these intrinsic capabilities of wound healing that's allowed them to use these Velcro molecules to very successfully find other places where there is space and there are nutrients and there are not a lot of cancer cells to set up shop. And in this process, what you so elegantly shared with us is that these cells become different and they become challenging because they are more aggressive and they've evolved all of these traits that help the cancer cells to survive. So one area of focus in your field are therapies for metastatic cancer, um, specifically targeted therapies. Because one thing that you shared with us is that these cancer cells are different. So the treatments that worked when, as you said, the tumor was in a, a primary confined site, those, those therapies don't work as well when tumors have moved, when cells have moved. So can you just remind us, um, what is a targeted therapy? What does that mean when we think about treating cancer patients? Yeah, so the word targeted therapy is often used in contrast to chemotherapy. And chemotherapy is basically treatment that we've used for many decades now, um, which really uh, generally targets any cell that is growing fast. And cancer cells certainly grow fast, but so do other cells of our body, such as our hair cells and our blood cells, which is what leads to the toxicities of many chemotherapies. And in the last 20 years or so, people have tried to move away from chemotherapy and its toxicities to what is known as targeted therapy. And targeted therapy really refers to treatments that are like a magic bullet. They can specifically target the mutations or the mutated pathways within cancer cells. And in that way, we are only targeting the cancer cells themselves and hopefully minimizing the toxicity in other types of tissues, such as normal cells. Um, and of course, um, over the last 20 years or so, targeted therapies have been phenomenally successful for a wide range of diseases. The most notable except, uh, example is Gleevec, which has turned chronic myeloid leukemia, which used to be a massive killer, into a chronic manageable disease with relatively limited toxicity or side effects. 
Uh, and our goal, of course, is to try and improve how well-targeted therapies work for a wide range of cancers, especially metastatic cancers. All right, fantastic. So I think that, at least to me, that's a very hopeful place that we are in. So I want to circle back to one of the things that you shared with us early on, which is that if the cells are quite different when they've moved versus the cancer cells that have stayed, how could we use these targeted therapies to treat metastatic disease? So some of our targeted therapies that we use currently uh, are used with the assumption that the primary tumors and the metastatic tumors are going to behave and respond to these treatments in the same ways. And unfortunately, in some cases, that has not been as successful as we would have liked. And we find that these metastatic tumors have what we call plasticity, the ability to uh, very quickly shift their shape to behave differently in response to therapy in a way that primary tumors simply cannot. They're just more adaptable and so they are more resistant to treatment. So one of the big goals of my lab's research is to try and understand what enables metastatic cancer cells to become plastic. What are the mechanisms that they have that make them so adaptable? And then find ways to specifically target treatments to those mechanisms that allow them to shift their shapes to begin with. That's fascinating. So it sounds like from all the things that you've described and just the tone and tenure of your voice that you're hopeful in this space. Can you maybe share a little bit about that? Absolutely. I think we're in a fantastic time today uh, with the amount of knowledge that we have through uh, next generation sequencing technologies and the genomics. We know so much more about cancer than we did even five years ago. And in addition, we're in an era where we're learning more about how to manipulate the immune system. We know that immunotherapy has had tremendous impact uh, in uh, turning some metastatic cancers into long-term chronic manageable diseases uh, rather than death sentences. And so we really have unprecedented technology, tools, knowledge um, uh, that are all coming together uh, to hopefully enable us to transform how we treat patients with cancer uh, and uh, to impact lives in a much more significant way than we've ever been able to do before. So I'm certainly very hopeful and optimistic, um, but of course, uh, this is a tough fight, but we are there to really uh, engage with this disease and to try and put it in its place. I agree with you. I think it, it, this is such a challenging space, but also we have never before had, you're right, the kind of tools, the technology, and the understanding of how cancer cells move, um, which you have so elegantly explained to us, and why they are so different than the cells that they began from. Um, and so I think we're just really at an unprecedented time for um, you know, uh, us, to be, us to be really helpful in a way that we haven't been before in treating metastatic disease. I, I have one question for you because I know that the American Cancer Society funded you early in your career. Um, was there a, a way that that funding impacted your career or decisions or, or progress? I think that'd be interesting for our listeners to hear. Absolutely. Uh, the funding from the American Cancer Society was absolutely crucial in enabling us to uh, do the work that we have done. And in general, funding from ACS uh, and other philanthropic support is really critical for early career scientists especially. Um, there are uh, science is challenging and scientific careers are hard. 
Um, and these are not easy battles that we're fighting with these difficult diseases. And having philanthropic support of this sort enables young scientists to really focus on these problems and attack the big questions and do things that are creative and challenging, um, but may have the potential to really transform the way we think about and treat cancer. And without the support, um, it would be uh, very easy to sort of fall off this track uh, and do something um, that may be easier in the short term, but less impactful in the long term. So I'm very, very grateful for ACS funding uh, to en have enabled me to launch my career uh, uh, studying metastatic cancer. Well, the gratefulness certainly goes both ways. We are so excited about all you've done and uh, quite frankly, the potential that you and the individuals who trained in your lab have. Um, I, I, we will continue to follow you and be excited and I just hope you know how grateful we are. I have one more question for you before I let you get back to all the good work that you're doing and that is that many of the listeners to our podcast our cancer patients or the individuals who care about them and care for them? Is there a particular message that you would like to share with these listeners? I want you to know that we are here fighting for you and with you every step of the way uh, and uh, that there's a whole community of people out there, physicians and scientists, who are working hard every single day um, to try and uh, make sure that we can beat this disease. Don't give up hope. Ah. What a fantastic note to end on. Karuna, thank you so much. We're grateful for you sharing your time with us and wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much, Susanna.